0: The first three verses that Paul had read for us this morning, so very, very important for us to understand them, and it really sets the table for the rest of the book, because in those three verses, we are introduced to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the only indispensable person in the entirety of Scripture. He is the one personality that cannot be taken out of the text without destroying the entirety of it. And so, as we see that it says that when he had by himself purged our sin, then he sat down. That means that he took his seat next to the majesty on high. And we know that it goes on to explain to us in the chapters that he he sits at rest in that place because there was nothing left for him to do until he makes his enemies his footstool. And that would be when he establishes his kingdom as he returns to the earth. With that in mind... The people that are being written to here in the book of Hebrews are those who are entertaining the idea of going back to a system that could no longer save them. And so as we read the first few verses in the book of Hebrews, let's do that in chapter 10. And then I want to get an opportunity to look back at the Old Testament and its understanding and help us a little bit also by looking at a couple of passages from the writings of Paul, the apostle, that help us to to piece together what we see here in chapter 10. But let's read the first few verses in Hebrews chapter 10. We've heard chapter one that God at various times and various ways spoke to the fathers, remember? Now we see in chapter 10, verse one, it says, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And then he will go on to quote from the Old Testament passages. And so in our first chapter, as we look past the qualifications and the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and why he is unique in all of human history, because he is God in the flesh, our first chapter was comparing him to angels, that in the mentality of the people of Israel... There were these ways that God would communicate, and among the greatest of them, of of the prophets and the ones who spoke forward, because of the mystical aspect of it, that God would speak through angels. And there are those times when those angels were quite unique, even among angels. We would think of them as Jesus appearing at times, even before we knew him as Jesus, because as with, uh, with Jacob, the idea that he would worship an angel, no angel would be worshiped. Angel meaning messenger, and yet we see that there are times when even worship was ascribed to an angel, and it could have been none other than Jesus. Only God is to be worshipped. Angels would not allow worship to themselves after what happened with Lucifer. So are we clear on all of that? If there's any question, please come up and talk with me after. I know I've thrown out a lot of things just in that. But as we look at chapter 1, we see that he is then compared to angels, and then in the comparison, there is really no comparison. He's greater than all of them. And so chapter 1 lays out how he is superior to the angels because he is the son, the heir of all things. In chapter 10, we are going to see Jesus as compared to the sacrifices. So all of the sacrifices that we know of the Old Testament are found perfected in him. They were temporary. In Jesus, they are now permanent in his one sacrifice. Our key verse in Hebrews chapter 10 is found in verse 14. Now, before I read it, let me ask of you, how many in here studied uh, English, and and especially in college or whatever else, in higher order of, of English? Is there anyone in here? Okay, there's one. That's it? Okay, I thought it was just me. I hated English, and it's supposed to be my first language. It usually feels like my second. But... In that, we read in verse 14, it says by one, well let's just read it, it says, For by one offering he, speaking of Jesus, he has perfected forever those being sanctified. The word has is a past tense, and then the being is present tense. So for those of us even with some kind of a rudimentary understanding of English, how can those two things be possible? One is forever, the other one is temporary. How can a person be perfect yet they're currently going through the process of sanctification? If we all understand what sanctification means, it means a separating out. And any of us, in our time of sanctification, we have to admit that there are those times of failure. But then how in, in the world can you possibly be perfect if yet on a day-to-day basis, you may fall short? How is that possible? In the mind of God, he sees us as a completed, finished work because of the work of Jesus Christ, which in itself was perfect. The forgiveness of sin is not something that is in dispute to the believer. So the sanctification is the moving more towards him every single day and being conformed into his image. We are being changed, sanctified. But where does this entire mentality come from? We've just read the first few verses and it talks about the sacrifices that were made. On Sunday nights back home, we we study through the Old Testament. We've just completed the book of Leviticus, and some may ask, well, why Leviticus? And there's a simple answer because it's right after Exodus. (laughs) So, what book are you going to do next? Numbers. Why Numbers? Because it's after Leviticus. So, my pastor did the same thing Genesis to Malachi. Well, what do you do when you get to Malachi? Go back to Genesis. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Let's continue to go through the scripture, because I guarantee you this, by the time that we come back around to Genesis again, as we read through it, we will see brand new things, because God's word is, is so greater, so much greater than our intellect, that God is able to speak at all kinds of different times in our lives through the exact same text, and we will see things that we had never seen before. The word is alive and powerful. We saw that in chapter 4 when that was taught here during the conference. So with that being said, the book of Leviticus, most people would say, oh, it's all about the priesthood. That's not relevant to us. It doesn't matter anymore. For the believer, we believe that what Jesus had done by going to the cross was an exchange of his innocence and perfection for our failure in sin. Some people would call that substitutionary atonement. But I'm here to tell you that that is in no ways a New Testament understanding. How do I know? Because I got a chance to read and to teach the book of Leviticus. Turn with me there. Leviticus chapter 1. I'm going to show you in no ways a thinly veiled or difficult to understand. I'm going to show you in plain simple English a very easy to understand explanation of substitutionary atonement, and this was for the children of Israel. Let's remember, as Leviticus is being written to these people, and, and written and through the, the work of Moses, actually, when, when these things are said to him, they are just coming out of Egypt in their captivity. This is at the very beginning, this is before they're even in the promised land. This is what Aaron and his sons, this is what the priesthood was to be doing in the way of dealing with the matters of sin, Look at what it says at verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting and saying, Speak to the children of Israel and you say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring the offering of the livestock and of the herd and of the flock. And if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male that is without blemish. That should be our first indication that we are looking forward to a time when Jesus, we've just gone through the, the season of what we would call the triumphal entry to Good Friday or to his sacrifice and then to his resurrection at First Fruits. We've just gone through that, the, the date of resurrection. It's just a couple of weeks we've gone through that whole thing as a, as a church, right? Well, Jesus, when he came in on the Mount of Olives and was presented before the people, we need to remember from John's perspective, the, John the Baptist, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? That was early on in Jesus' ministry. How did John know that he was to be a lamb that takes away the sin of the world? God gave him that insight. And so as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and presents himself as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world through his offering at Passover, he was examined because he was challenged by those who, who would oppose him. And he showed himself to be perfect without blemish. There was no no failure in him whatsoever, though they tried. So we see, if it is a burnt sacrifice, it is to be a male that is without blemish, and the person bringing it, he will offer it of his own free will. Nobody is going to make the person bring the offering. They have to come to the recognition of their need, and they had to bring that sacrifice. And so we see... He will bring it to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting of the Lord and then he shall put his hand upon the head of that burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So the the. The recognition of the sin of the person was to be put upon this innocent animal, thus the transferal, if you will, kind of in the image of it, was to put his hand on on the head of the animal, that recognition that this innocent animal was about to pay the ultimate price because of my sin and my disobedience to a holy God. But I would do so of my own free will because of my recognition of my sin, and this would be the price of atonement. But remember, it is only for a time, because it was being repeated all the time. We read that in the book of Hebrews. Turn to chapter 17 of the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 17, read with me at verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among my people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. We'll circle around to that when we get to Hebrews, but I want to also remind ourselves that this was the price of atonement, and yet it was always being repeated. It was having to happen at all times because man continues to be sinful. And in this case, this kind of a sacrifice could never take away permanently the 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 problem of sin. And so as we will read when we get to Galatians in just a moment we will we will see the limitations that the law has and the book of Hebrews also helps us in our understanding of that truth. So as we read through this and as we read through these passages in Leviticus I hope that we are able to see though some people want to dismiss the entirety of the Old Testament telling us that we're a New Testament church and that we can teach the full counsel of God through the New Testament we don't even understand the atoning work of Jesus, who the one who could purge our sins by his sacrifice unless we first start at Leviticus. That's where it's explained to us in the first place. The fact that Jesus could nullify and, and complete and finish this work that would not have to be a repetitious thing, it could be a once and for all, thereby perfecting those being sanctified. It's a marvelous, marvelous study through the word of God, and it is so consistent. Well, as we look at these passages, I would ask you then to turn, as I had mentioned, to the book of Galatians. And all of this will help us in our understanding of the argument made in the book of Hebrews. So at Galatians, let's make sure that we are careful to recognize... What the New Testament teaches about the Old Testament, that we are not in any way hostile towards the law itself. Because that can sometimes be the case, and then it is seen as though we somehow mock the the Old Testament and all of what it represented. We should be very, very careful to recognize that the law itself was, as David said, it was perfect. And it converted the soul to his time. We look back from the New Testament and say, the law of God is indeed perfect. There is no question about that. The problem was not the law. The problem was the people who could never keep it, correct? Here is what the book of Galatians says. And for anyone who believes that we could somehow make our way to heaven by our own efforts... It is impossible, and the book of Hebrews here would explain that. I do want to point out, too, because some of us have family members who probably believe that as they take communion, that they are literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. If that was the case, Jesus would have been an abomination before God by causing people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was a Jewish man under Jewish law. He would never have violated the book of Leviticus. Jesus was no sinner. So, of course, that is a church tradition, but it is absolutely impossible that Jesus would do anything that would in any way violate even the smallest bit of the law, or else he would be a sinner also in need of redemption. You get the point? Hugely important. So for those who might think that they could somehow earn their way to heaven, we have the book of Galatians, and I would turn you to chapter 3. A very similar argument is being made to the the churches at Galatia, which is also being made to the people who are reading the book of Hebrews. And here was this troublesome thing that was really a difficulty to the early church. Again, it's preserved for us some 2,000 years later, but whether it's the book of Hebrews or whether it's Galatians, those people who would entertain the idea of going back to a system that no longer had the ability to save them. And so even in our world today, if we want to make application, those people who think that they could somehow earn their way to heaven by their own actions, it certainly puts Jesus in the place of being the one who could offer his body as atonement, but it was incomplete until somehow we validated that. The absurdity of that. It's it's tragic that people fall into that. Here's what Paul does in the beginning of chapter 3 by saying, who has bewitched you? Remember, we know that having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect by the the works of the flesh? And then he goes on to explain that in the person of Jesus, by his finished work, there is no reason for us to try to keep elements of the law. He has perfected those things. And so our faith is in him and not in the elements of the law. Now, Paul is in no ways hostile toward, look at what towards the law, look at what he says in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly Not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all of us to be under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, they, or we rather, were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to to Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And I do find this a, a fascinating thing because when when the covenant was made with Abraham, there was no law, right? That was given to us at Moses. Well, then how was it that Abraham was to be pleasing before God? Faith. Abraham walked by faith and that made him, it accounted to him as righteousness. We get that from Genesis 15. You can go read it. So Abraham was a man who walked by faith and so did all who believed from that point until Moses when God said, Here's what I expect of you, and I'm going to put it in writing. And by putting it in writing, now you have no way to get around it. This is what is expected by me, and this is what perfection looks like. Paul would tell us that anyone who looks at the law would have to see, I am a failure, because the law shows to me what perfection looks like. And by showing me perfection, it illustrates immediately my inability to keep it, and therefore I am imperfect. So what does that end up doing? It brings me to Jesus to say, what do I do? I can't keep the law. I can't do in perfection what is required of me. And it brings us and it drops us at the very feet of Jesus, the one who kept it in its perfection and in its completeness that I could say, forgive me and cleanse me. This is what the writing of Hebrews is about. One last thing. Let me just give you the reference Okay, let me not give you the reference. Let me just give you Romans chapter 10. Let's turn there very, very quickly because I want to read it. It is such an important verse to hear when you read it. It is one of those verses that so often when we talk about the necessity for coming to Jesus and seeking him for forgiveness, we know a whole bunch of different passages, maybe a lot of them right out of the book of of Romans here. 323 is probably known to most of us. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's a statement of fact. It's not debatable. Somebody wants to try to object to that and argue it. Well, forget it. Because all in the Greek means all. How about that? All sin falls short of the glory of God. Statement of fact. Well, what what about happens after that that point? What what then? Well, chapter 6, verse 23 says, And the wages of that sin is death. Okay, so there's no way out? Oh, no, no. But the gift of God is eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. So because of that, we can come to chapter 10, look at verse 4, it says, For Jesus, for Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Belief in the person of Jesus because he was the perfection and completion of the law is how it is that we can come before the Lord and we can be seen as perfected though being sanctified. Is that starting to become clear? You're not helping me with my confidence here, ladies and gentlemen. So, so let's then turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at our text. We've read the first verses of, of Hebrews 10. And I love this because what, what we hear in this text was the sacrificial system that we have read from Leviticus It was able to atone for man's sin, but we read in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus has purged our sin. Those are two entirely different things. To purge something is to have it removed. To atone for it, in the Old Testament sense, was to have it covered, but for a time. And it was always being repeated. Said another way, if we want to do it in visual, when it came to the sacrifices, it would be God saying, your sin is covered. But I'll have to deal with that later. What the, what the law would do to us is to say, here is the problem and here is the offense. So the law was able to say, here's where you have failed. And if we were to say, okay, great, let's admit that I have failed. Now what? The law would say, I, I can't help you with that. I can only identify the problem, but I can't give you the solution. In the person of Jesus, we have the solution. And the book of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear by everything that would be understandable to the Jewish mentality. Whether it's angels and the way that God communicated, Jesus is superior. In chapter 10, when it comes to the sacrifice, though what God gave at that time was perfect and acceptable to him, it was still very much temporary. So in Jesus, we have the perfection, we have everything that is necessary. So as we read on through those verses, we got to verse 10 where it tells us, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4. Then when we get to verse 4, it tells us this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he had come into the world, he said this, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and in sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure then i said behold i will have um, i have come and in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will people would be able to read that through the ages and say who is being spoken of here As we've been looking at through this study in the conference, through the book of Hebrews, so very often we have quotations from the Old Testament and they are applied to one person and one person only in all of human history, that being Jesus Christ. So if anybody would want to come up with some kind of an alternate view from Psalm 40, you run headlong into this problem. The Bible has already validated and given the explanation of who the person is that's being spoken of here and it is none other than Jesus Christ. So, as this person who has had this body prepared, this is a prophetic from chapter 40 of the book of Psalms speaking of Jesus. And at the time when he came, he then was the fulfillment of this psalm. And the writer of Hebrews makes sure that we understand that. So, it's taken from Psalms um, chapter 40. So, it it says sacrifice and offering. And now, at verse 8, he's going to give a little bit of a repetition of that. Now, Before we go um, any further, let me give you a reference to look at, and it's found, and I shared this on on Friday morning when I was in chapter 1, but in the book of John, John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus contending with the religious leaders, he says to them, you do search the scriptures, for in them you believe that you have eternal life, but they testify of me. We've just read one of the myriad verses that you could read all throughout the book of Hebrews that is a testifying of taking those verses and making application to Jesus. The people would think that their salvation was tied up in the understanding of the law and the and the chapter and verse. And here Jesus says, you may be familiar with the text, but the text is speaking of me. It is supposed to lead you to me. It is not an end of itself. So here we have a great example of it. And so, The writer of Hebrews wants to use this as an example, and he says, Now previously he had said, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor did you have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. So yeah, they were put in place. The sacrifices were to deal with the, the, now with the people of Israel, they understood what their sin looked like because God had taken the time to write it down. This is what is acceptable. You do this and you do not do that. And if you violate that, something of innocence was going to have to pay the price for your sin. Bulls and goats and animals were going to have to pay that price. But God had no pleasure in those things. They were to keep people in a place of mindfulness that they could defy God by their own will and sin. And that they would have to seek remedy. And so here we see at verse 9, Then he said, Behold... I have come to do your will, O God. So he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. The writer of Hebrews is saying God had no pleasure in that old system. So even though he is the one who put it in place, it was to get them to the point that when Jesus came, that they could look to him and no longer have the temporary, but they, they could now have the permanent solution. And so this is what we see laid out in the book of Hebrews. And so he takes that verse and splits it in two from Psalms, and said, this is what was, this is what now is. A body has been prepared. So verse 10 says, by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all, and every priest, now he brings in the priesthood, their limitation, Jesus superior in the offering, Jesus also superior in the one who offers By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But by this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down, took his seat at the right hand of God. That is exactly what we see in the first opening verses of the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 in particular. After he had purged our sins, he took his seat next to the majesty on high. Waiting for what? Until his enemies are made his footstool. Well, we see at verse 13, it tells us this. And now from that time, since he took his seat 2,000 years ago, from that time he is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For, here's our verse, for by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, But I know that every time that there are are believers that will gather together, there are also in that group of people, and it's a sizable group here this morning, there are more than likely those people who think, that is speaking to everybody but me, because Chris, you don't know what I've done. And I'm able to say, I don't care what you've done. I would care if you came up and said, would you pray for me? Sure, because then I'll become knowledgeable of what it is, but you cannot give me an objection that says, well, that speaks to everybody, but it doesn't speak to me because you don't know what I've done. I'm here to tell you that every sin that you could have ever committed was paid for at Calvary, so it's a non-starter. If you're somehow thinking that you have out the grace of God, then you're listening to what the enemy says because my scripture here tells me that he has forever perfected those being sanctified. Now, I would tell you also, don't walk another day in your disobedience, Repent and get it right with him and walk rightly before him and walk in the newness of life that he offers to you. There's, there is comfort in the life of the believer. We aren't to walk with our heads down. David tells me he's the lifter of my head. And I have a better understanding of who God is than even David did. Because I'm no longer having my sins atoned for and repeatedly seeing a sacrifice. Mine have been purged. I simply come to him and seek him for forgiveness when forgiveness is necessary. Acknowledge the sin, repent of it, be restored. We have access that they could have only dreamed of. He has by one sacrifice, by that sacrifice, has forever made perfect those being sanctified. You want to know where else this word is used of, being, of having being perfected? You have been perfected? I'm going to show it to you and it is found in John chapter 19. Let's turn to John 19 quickly, because as I was walking up here, Dwight told me how long I have, and I feel the constraint. It's closing in around me. (laughs) He's not even looking at me. Look at verse 28 with me in the book of John. Now, we've heard people uh, use the the term when Jesus uh, um, said, it is finished. And they will say, tetelestai. Well, tetelestai is the noun. What he actually said was teleo, which is the action. It's the verb. It is finished. Just before that, we see in the the, uh, uh, verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus... Knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. You see that word fulfilled? That is to lay out. And that is just to say it is finished. It is complete. There's nothing left. It is the exact same word that you have in the book of Hebrews where it says he has perfected. He has brought to completion. He has brought to fulfillment by his offering. To those who put their trust in him, though being sanctified, though there are the failures and all the rest, what the Father sees in us is the same completion that Jesus was able to say, I have finished the task, I've completed what you've sent me to do. Because of what he had accomplished, it is then accomplished in those who put their trust in him. We can be perfected, though being sanctified. That doesn't mean that we are sinless, it means that we are blameless if we walk with him and we trust in his completed, finished work, that means at all times recognizing any of our failures, acknowledging them before him, and as as John would tell us in 1 John, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. The tense of that cleansing is that it continually cleanses at all times. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are in here, any of you, and you think you just don't know what I have done, I don't have to. I can say he has perfected those who come to him, By one offering, he is sanctifying those who are already perfected. We are simply to acknowledge that and walk in the newness of life. Look at what we see at verse 15, back to Hebrews. So it tells us that it is not just the argument from Scripture. It is not just the the academic way of viewing of the passage that is a testimony of this. We have verse 15 that says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said this before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, and I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them. Let's stop there. And we're not going to look at the passage because, again, uh, Dwight put me under a time restraint. (laughs) Kidding. I'm joking. Mike has to come up here, and you guys have to go home and make room for the next people. So I can't blame anybody but me for being long-winded. So... This is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31. You can go back and it talks about the work that he would do. And here's what's important. We need to recognize if we look at Jeremiah 31, he is speaking specifically to the children of Israel. The work that he will do future. And now, if anybody would look at that, and if they try to make it about the church, we are able to say, time out. It is written to Israel. They are mentioned by name. And the people that are being referred to here in the book of Hebrews are entertaining the idea of going back to the law So the writer of Hebrews says, if you're wondering what that whole Jeremiah thing was about, it is about this right here. Let's be reminded of another very important thing when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Are we all agreed on this? Jesus was not the first Christian. Are we okay with that? Thank you. I appreciate when there's at least one person that will answer that. Jesus was a Jewish man, born of the tribe of Judah, perfect in the law. He was a Jewish man. His audience was almost primarily Jewish. So he's fulfilling a jewish law that both jew and gentile could come to him and be perfected that's why paul would say there's no distinction neither jew nor gentile man nor woman rich nor nor slave you know free or free nor slave rich or poor there is no distinction all are one in him so as we see this this promise this is the covenant that I will make with them after these, those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. The writer of Hebrews says what God promised to Jeremiah has taken place with you in fulfillment of that passage. Now be careful, as he says the rest of it, verse eighteen or 17. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So where there is remission of these things, then there is no longer offerings for sin because they have been remitted, they have been purged, they have been removed. They are not just atoned for, they are not covered for a time as they were in the law, but because of once and for all sacrifice, they have been removed, taken away. The believer, whether it is at this time or whether it is in ours, if somehow we ever entertain the thought of going back to whatever it was that we had done before, there is no life there. Even if it is the law, there is no life there. So he continues on at verse 19. Because of that, therefore, brethren... Notice how he adds himself in among them. Brethren, having boldness to enter the, holy, the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The imagery is this. To go into the very presence of God. And the boldness that is there is not one of arrogance. It is one of assurance And yeah, it would be a humbling thing. And it should be, even to this day, to the believer, as we come before God, it should be a humbling matter where we recognize, I have no right to be here of myself, but I have been given access to the very throne room of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. If that does not cause you any kind of humility, you're not paying attention. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is by a new and a living way which he, Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh that was torn and that it was broken. And because of that, we now have access. Remember the visual that took place in the temple? And the curtain that had separated the holy of holies from man man between God was ripped from top to bottom. God tearing it, saying, enter in. That's the promise that we have in this. And my pastor, I, I loved the visual pictures that he was able to, to, to uh, you know, bring to us and, and show to us. And I'm sure he's not the guy who came up with it first. But the first time I'd ever heard it was from him. And it's, it's indelibly impressed in my mind. It's probably 25 years ago I heard this. He would say, if you stop to think about what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like, wherein the inner the inner place, the holiest of all, was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And as we know from another chapter here in Hebrews, we know what was inside the ark. And inside of that was Aaron's rod that had budded. There was some of the manna that had been taken in the wilderness. There were the the tablets of the law. They were all there. In the covering, over the top of it, was the cherubim and the mercy seat of God. Jack used to always love to point out to me, he said, what you have inside of the box portion of it is the elements of the law. But over above it, he says, Mercy always triumphs over the law. I miss him. Verse 21 says, And having a high priest over the house of God, here's what we are to do in these three, these three parts. Let us then draw near with a true heart that is in the full assurance of faith Having our hearts sprinkled, notice again the the tense, having at all times, knowing that we are sprinkled, yeah, that's the part of sanctification, but if it were not for the finished work of Jesus, we would have nothing to sprinkle the conscience, because it is his blood that atones, it's not an animal, so it's able to say to us, let us then, let us with a true heart and the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us then hold fast our confession. That means to hold on to it, not to let it go. Do so without wavering for, here's why, because the one who has promised, he, is faithful. How is it that we can hold on to our confession? Because it's not based upon us, it's based upon him. Hold fast to that, don't let that go. And then he says this as well. What's one of the best ways for this? Well, then let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's the fellowship of the believer, one to another. We are to, as Proverbs would tell us, as iron sharpens iron, so the countenance of the other sharpens, you know, that, that whole visual that he gives to us. Again, when you're around the believers, we are to interact with one another. And yeah, there's a, there's a real good accountability that comes along with that. Let us be around one another to stir up love and good works. Maybe we see it by demonstration. Or maybe it is that for our own conscience sake, we want to be as those around us that are walking rightly before the Lord. Are you challenged by some people when you see them? They have such a dynamic walk. I kind of want to hang around them, but I I feel kind of like I shouldn't because they're liable to know what's going on in my life. That should be a great motivating factor. Don't be the lesser, be the greater. Stirring up love and good works, and he says this. How's that going to happen? Well, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And I want to be careful about the application and going too heavy on it. But if you don't see the day approaching around you, goodness gracious, you're not paying attention. It's getting worse and worse and worse. So where do you go? Where are the friendly confines to be around like-minded people? Well, this is a good place. Stir it up. What you find, because I really don't, I can't do the rest of this in any kind of detail, but... At verse 26, very, very controversial. There are several verses here that are are deeply controversial. They really kind of run through the rest of the chapter. Let me just read this very quickly. 26 says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose we will or uh, he will be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? It's an argument to say, if we sin willfully, well... Is there anybody in here that doesn't sin willfully? Once again, if you think that you are that person, you don't understand the scripture. You will make decisions every single day that you go, I know I shouldn't do this. Even if it's just that little thing in the back of your head. So wait a minute, doesn't that one verse, verse 26, doesn't that nullify everything that we've read in the book to this point? Sinning willfully? What's the sin that is willful on their part and that is going back to something that could no longer save them? So the writer of Hebrews says, you can go back to the elements of the law. You can try to earn your way of salvation, but you need to realize that there's no life in that because God has now made it complete in the person of Jesus. Romans 10.4, he's a finishing of the law. Galatians 3 that says, well, if righteousness would come by the law, it's supposed to bring us to Jesus because we realize we can't be. Or if chapter 2, if, if righteousness would come by the law in Galatians, then Jesus died with no good reason, Right? So the same arguments are made in all of these places. Well, he goes on from that point to explain to them the consequences of that. But let me read something that would be reassuring to us as we close here. Verse 35 says, Therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, then you may receive this promise a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just will live by faith, but anyone who draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If you're reading a Septuagint, when that was transcribed by the Hebrews, from the Hebrew scriptures to Greek, that is the the Hebrew translation or the Septuagint translation of that verse. When you read it in your own, you know, King James, New King James, whatever translation, you'll see uh, Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4 reads a little bit different. The writer of Hebrews here uses the Septuagint for the forcefulness of it. Once again, making the Old Testament validate the New. They're not two Testaments that are at odds with one another. These are two Testaments that speak seamlessly of the same truths. So then in verse 39, he says, But we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. So once again, to put a nice fine little point on this, it is very important for us to recognize that in the person of Jesus, we have the perfection of everything that's in the law. In our modern day, maybe there, there might not be a single one of us that came to Jesus through uh, a, a Jewish background and that we were people who kept the law as much as we could and, and you know that whole kind of a thing. It has application there. It also has application to our day. If there is to be the salvation or the saving of the soul, it does not come through our efforts. Everything that could save a person eternally was done in the person of Jesus Christ, and yes, it was done before you drew breath. Everything for salvation was completed and accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You simply walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. So grateful for your word that settles every argument, no matter how great, no matter how small, you have demonstrated to us in the scripture itself that we can know the way to be made right before you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, maybe even for those who don't know you, that they would settle themselves in these basic truths. We can do nothing to earn your love. It was given to us freely at a cross. We thank you that we can have hope and trust and faith, though we fail we are being sanctified yet perfected cuz you see the end from the beginning you see the beginning from the end and you have sought to eternity for us we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus name amen isn't that one verse verse 26 doesn't that nullify everything that we've read in the book to this point sinning willfully What's the sin that is willful on their part, and that is going back to something that could no longer save them? So the writer of Hebrews says, you can go back to the elements of the law. You could try to earn your way of salvation, but you need to realize that there's no life in that because God has now made it complete in the person of Jesus. Romans 10.4, he's a finishing of the law. Galatians 3 that says, well, if righteousness would come by the law... It's supposed to bring us to Jesus because we realize we can't be. Or if chapter 2, if, if righteousness would come by the law in Galatians, then Jesus died with no good reason, right? So the same arguments are made in all of these places. Well, he goes on from that point to explain to them the consequences of that. But let me read something that would be reassuring to us as we close here. Verse 35 says, Therefore, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, So that after you have done the will of God, then you may receive this promise a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now, the just will live by faith, but anyone who draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's taken from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. If you're reading a Septuagint, when that was transcribed by the Hebrews from the Hebrew scriptures to Greek, That is the the Hebrew translation or the Septuagint translation of that verse. When you read it in your own, you know, King James, New King James, whatever translation, you'll see uh, Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4 reads a little bit different. The writer of Hebrews here uses the Septuagint for the forcefulness of it. Once again, making the Old Testament validate the New. They're not two Testaments that are at odds with one another. These are two Testaments that speak seamlessly of the same truths, so then in verse 39, he says, but we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. So once again, to put a nice fine little point on this, it is very important for us to recognize that in the person of Jesus, we have the perfection of everything that's in the law. In our modern day, maybe there, there might not be a single one of us that came to Jesus through uh, a, a Jewish background and that we were people who kept the law as much as we could, And, and, you know, that whole kind of a thing. It has application there. It also has application to our day. If there is to be the salvation or the saving of the soul, it does not come through our efforts. Everything that could save a person eternally was done in the person of Jesus Christ. And yes, it was done before you drew breath. Everything for salvation was completed and accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your way to heaven You simply walk by faith. The just shall live by faith. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. So grateful for your word that settles every argument, no matter how great, no matter how small, you have demonstrated to us in the scripture itself that we can know the way to be made right before you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, maybe even for those who don't know you, that they would settle themselves in these basic truths, We can do nothing to earn your love. It was given to us freely at a cross. We thank you that we can have hope and trust and faith. Though we fail, we are being sanctified yet perfected because you see the end from the beginning. You see the beginning from the end and you have sought to eternity for us. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.